seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, sharp two-edged sword, and in his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Okay, so last week, Pastor Chris kicked off our new series here in the book of Revelation, where we're specifically looking at Jesus in the book. And as we looked at those first eight uh, verses in the book, in the opening chapter, what we saw there is that John identifies himself as the author of the book. But he also, in those first eight verses, talks a little bit about why he wrote it and who it was written to. But then from there, we see that John uh, gives this initial greeting to those seven churches. But then at the end of the greeting, he gets so caught up and so wrapped up in talking about Jesus that he actually breaks out into worship. And he even writes this uh, beautiful doxology where he talks about Jesus freeing us from our sins. And so now we come to verse 9, and we see John start to give us some, some more of the backstory, some more of the context as to how this book, this revelation came to be. And again, he says there in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so John, again, identifies himself to these seven churches. And in doing so, he very humbly refers to himself as their brother. Which if you think about that, that on its own is pretty amazing. Right? I mean, John was an apostle. He was one of the original 12 disciples. But not only that, he was actually even a part of that inner three, that, that, that group of three that was extremely close to Jesus. And yet instead of leaning into that for his identity and even his authority, he just simply says, I, John, your brother. But not only that, he also says here that he is a partner or a companion with them in the tribulation. You see, Chris talked about it a little bit last week, but for the most part, during this time period in the late first century, the church was in the midst of a very severe outbreak of persecution by the Roman government. And not only was the church experiencing it, but John himself was also experiencing persecution. In fact, he even mentions here when he tells us that he is on the island called Patmos. Um, we know from history that Patmos was a penal island. It was a, a place where Rome sent prisoners in order to punish them. In other words, it was a kind of Alcatraz, if you will. 
And again, according to John's own testimony, he is there. He was put on this island because of his faith and his testimony in the Lord Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't read this passage this week without thinking about uh, all of the things that are happening in Afghanistan right now. I mean, I don't know how much of uh, you've been able to follow But as I just think about our brothers and sisters over there, and I've read multiple articles from uh, different Afghan pastors and ministry leaders over there who are describing the the situation. In fact, in one article I read this, uh, just a couple months ago, this group of pastors and, and Christians decided to formally register with the Afghanistan government. And, and to declare that they were Christians. And that alone, even a couple months ago, was an extremely dangerous thing to do. But, but now with the Taliban having taken over, they're starting to get, one of them talked about that uh, they got a letter from the Taliban saying, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. I mean, that is terrifying. I can't imagine driving home today and finding a letter on my porch with something like that in it. And so actually, before we go any farther, I just want to pray. I didn't pray after we read the passage because I wanted to pray now and to pray specifically for Afghanistan and to pray for our brothers and sisters over there. I mean, I know the whole country is being affected, but it it certainly seems that, that believers are being targeted in a more profound way. And so will you join me in praying for them now? You know, actually, before that, let me just... One of the reasons why I want to do this is in Hebrews chapter 13, we are told to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since we also are in the body. And so as we sit here in this very comfortable room with zero chance or zero threat of having our lives taken for our faith, let us not forget our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have that same privilege. And so join me now. Father, Lord, we, we can't imagine what our fellow brothers and sisters are facing right now. God, the fear, the terror. God, the desperation. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not remove yourself from suffering, but you entered into it. Lord, through the cross, you know exactly what they're facing. And so, Father, I, I confess, I don't even in some ways know how to pray but I pray that you would provide protection. Lord, I know many of them are fleeing to the mountains. I pray you provide shelter and food for them and water. God, I pray you'd give them discernment to know where to go and and how to move and who to talk to and who not to talk to. Father, I pray, Lord, we know that some have already and no doubt more will in fact face death. Jesus, I pray you give them courage and boldness. Jesus, just like Stephen, as he was being stoned, as he looked up and saw you standing at the right hand of God, Lord, I pray you would meet them and you would provide them the boldness and the strength that they need. God, we pray you'd give our leaders and leaders around the world uh, just compassion and, and wisdom to know how to best help and to intervene. Lord, we thank you for the church in Afghanistan. And we ask that you bless them, Lord. Pray you'd continue to let their light shine for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, getting back to our text here, John again says here in verse nine, he says, I, John, your brother, your partner in the tribulation. But then he also adds the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. 
And even with the way that John lays this out here, I think John is communicating to us the, the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom has broken in with the first coming of Jesus. And yes, you and I, if we know Jesus, we are a part of that. But no, the kingdom is not yet fully realized until Christ returns. And so because of that, suffering and tribulation are a part of our reality. And therefore, we are called to endure it with patience. Um, commentator G.K. Beale put it this way. He said, one cannot exercise kingdom rule except through tribulation and endurance. This is the formula for kingship. Faithful endurance through tribulation is the means by which one reigns in the present with Jesus. And I know that for some of us, this feels upside down. This feels paradoxical even. But this is how Jesus lived his life while here on the earth. On the one hand, he's working miracles and he's casting out demons and healing people. But on the other hand, he's being mistreated and rejected by the religious leaders. At one point, he's riding a donkey into Jerusalem and they are hailing him as the coming king, as the Messiah. But then the next week, that same crowd is yelling, crucify him. And so just as this was Jesus and John's reality, uh, this is our reality as well. And again, there are brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing this in a way that you and I cannot imagine. And so the kingdom is already, but it's not yet. And so therefore we have to endure with patience. But let's keep reading. Look at verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so again, here is John. He's on the island of Patmos. He's being persecuted and punished for his faith. And yet, here he is on the Lord's Day, or in other words, a Sunday, and he is worshiping, and he's having his own little church service with himself. And as he is worshiping, he's in the Spirit, and he hears a loud voice like a trumpet that tells him to write down what he sees in a book and to send it to those seven churches that are listed in verse 11. Now again, this is an amazing scene. Here's John, he's worshiping, perhaps even praying to God, and Jesus sneaks up behind him and scares him half to death, right? That's what verse 17 says. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, again, I told you at the beginning, we need to approach this book and, and definitely this passage with an understanding of the Old Testament in our minds. And as we look at even these first couple of verses, there should be a number of things that stand out to us. I mean, when we look at this scene and when we see some of the language that's being used, there is no doubt that John is being cast and even compared here to uh, the Old Testament prophets. I mean, first off, many of the Old Testament prophets wrote and had their heavenly visions while being in some of the worst and most difficult times in Israel's history. In fact, many of them did so while being in exile. And in the same way, here is John, He's in the middle of an intense season of persecution and he's literally exiled on the island of Patmos. Not only that, but when you uh, look at many of the Old Testament prophets as it's describing uh, in their books what, what's going on, it says that many of them are in the spirit or that they're taken by the spirit and that's when they receive a direct word from God or they see a heavenly vision. 
And then they're also in that same time told to write down what they see and hear. And in this passage, that's exactly what's happening to John. He's in the spirit and he's being commanded to write down what he sees and hears. As well, even this language here of a loud trumpet blast. Um, we see in the book of Exodus that the trumpet blast signal, signaled the Lord's descent to meet Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, even the way that John responds by falling down as though dead is how Daniel and Isaiah and others responded when they encountered the glory of God. And so again, we see here multiple elements from the Old Testament, which are tied to the prophets. And here we have them being applied and connected to the apostle John. And so John, like an Old Testament prophet, he's being told to write down what he sees and what he hears. And so what does John see? What does he hear? What does he show us in this opening vision? Well, you know, my wife often accuses me of spoiling things when I try to talk about a book or a movie I read. And so let me just live up to that accusation. Spoiler alert here. What John sees is the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And so in doing so, John the prophet is going to describe for us four truths about Jesus. And the first truth that he shows us is that Jesus loves and Jesus cares for his church. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Okay, so John hears this loud trumpet sound and he turns around to see the voice that is speaking to him. And the first thing he tells us is that he sees seven golden lampstands. And then he says he sees among the lampstands one like a son of man. Now we'll get into the son of man language here in a minute. But, but for now, the point I want to make is that John sees Jesus the son of man, and where is Jesus standing? And where is he among? He is with the lampstands. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what in the world are the lampstands and why is that significant? Well, thankfully, you know, often in the book of Revelation, we're not told what the symbolism is, but we are explicitly told here in verse 20 that the lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, not only does it tell us that John sees Jesus among the lampstands, but even what he describes there with uh, Jesus wearing a long robe and a golden sash, uh, many have pointed out that that is what the high priest would wear. And that really shouldn't surprise us because we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is, in fact, the one true and final high priest. And one of the things that the priest uh, did is that they tended to and they looked after the lampstand in the temple. And they would make sure that the wicks were trimmed and they made sure that it stayed lit at all times. Now, as Chris told you last week, the number seven in the book of Revelation is highly symbolic, um, not only in the book of Revelation, but really throughout the Bible. And according to New Testament scholar Craig Keener, in talking about the lampstands, he wrote this. He said, throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, this seven-branched lampstand or menorah stood as the most common symbol of Israel and Judaism. But whereas the lampstand in Jewish iconography may stand for Israel as a whole, for John, each local congregation is a lampstand, perhaps because it embodies the church universal in all its fullness. 
So maybe you're wondering, well, what's the point of all of this? Well, again, the point is Jesus loves and Jesus cares for his church. I mean, as we get into the letters here next week and the weeks to follow, uh, we're going to see that many of these churches, uh, if not most of them, had some major issues, right? Like these weren't perfect churches. They, they were messed up. And yet, the picture that we get here at the very beginning of John's vision is a picture of Jesus, the great high priest, and he is with his churches, and he is caring for them, and he is making sure that their light continues to shine. And not only that, but as Keener pointed out, most likely with the symbolism that's involved here, this is supposed to represent Jesus among not only these seven local churches in Asia Minor, but all churches of all times. And man, I don't know about you, but just given how the church in America has looked over the last couple of years with all of its faults and scandals, I feel really thankful for this image and even this promise that Jesus is present with the church. I mean, I think if I was him, I would have walked away a long time ago, but that's not what he does. No, Jesus is with his church. He is among his church. He is actively caring for her. For her. I mean, actually, I, I think all of the sin that has been exposed in recent years among uh, many well-known church leaders in America is actually an act of grace. And it's evidence that Jesus loves his church. I mean, I know it doesn't feel that way, but according to the Bible, God disciplines the ones that he loves. According to Romans chapter one, God's wrath, when God wants to show wrath to someone, he doesn't rebuke them or call out their sin, but rather he lets them persist in it. And so again, the fact that this sin has been exposed is an act of love and grace. And look, I know if you get on Facebook, there's a lot of people who want to give up on the church. They want to move on to something else. But the reality is, if you want to find Jesus, if you want to be close to Jesus, then you can only find him in his church because that is where he is. He is among the church. I mean, seriously, I just want us to think about that for a moment. If what this passage is telling us is true, If what Jesus said in the gospels where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them, if that is true, then what that means is that Jesus Christ, the son of God, the king of kings, he's in this room right now by the presence of the spirit. That's amazing. I, you know, this week as I was thinking about that, I I was sort of picturing all of us in here and Jesus just walking up and down the aisles, walking down front here. That's amazing, Right? I mean, look, whether we are aware of him or not, Jesus is here right now. He's with us and he loves us. And he is actively caring for us because we are a part of his church. And look, when it comes to his church, Jesus, he's not looking for critics or cynics, but rather he's looking for humble servants. You see, it's really easy to criticize and malign the church and point out all of her faults. But it's a lot harder to love her and to care for her and to stay connected to her even when she doesn't look so pretty. So that's the first thing that John shows us about Jesus in this vision. Jesus loves and Jesus cares for his church. The second truth that John shows us about Jesus from this vision is that Jesus himself is in fact God. Look at verse 13. 
In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, if you're a first century Israelite who knows your Old Testament well, which almost all of them did, then when you read a description like that, there should be all kinds of bells and whistles going off in your head, letting you know that the one being described is a divine being. And not just any divine being, it is Israel's God, it is Yahweh. Now, a lot of this is pretty technical and, and certain descriptions, there's some debate around, but I think when taken collectively together, there is no doubt that John is attributing characteristics and descriptions of Yahweh in the Old Testament with Jesus here in Revelation chapter one. And so let's roll through some of these now. The first description we see in verse 13 says that John sees one like a son of man. Now, not only was the title Son of Man Jesus' favorite name or title for himself while here on earth, but we also know that it comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel describes this amazing scene in heaven, which consists of Yahweh, where he calls there the Ancient of Days. Uh, and, and so he's describing the Ancient of Days, but then this new uh, mysterious figure shows up on the scene called One Like the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, here's Daniel and he's seeing this vision of heaven and in it he sees Yahweh, the ancient of days and he is approached by one like a son of man. And, and then the son of man we are told is riding on the clouds which Jesus is said to do in Revelation 1-7 which we looked at last week. And in that, Yahweh gives him an everlasting kingdom. And he gives him all authority. All of which the New Testament affirms of being true of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. In Daniel chapter 7, we see two distinct figures. We see Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, and we see the Son of Man. However, though, if we come back to our passage in Revelation, we see Jesus referred to as the Son of Man, but it also tells us here that his hair is as white as wool. And we didn't read it, uh, but if you look earlier in Daniel 7, when, when Daniel describes Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, it says there in verse 9 that his clothing was as white as snow and that the hair of his head is like pure wool. In other words... In Revelation chapter 1, John is describing Jesus with the same language and description that Daniel used of Yahweh in chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Not only that, but if we look at Daniel chapter 10, we see Daniel describe this uh, other being, this one who looks like a man. And in that passage, we're told that, that the man had clothing made of linen, that he had a belt made of uh, gold, 
and that his appearance was that of lightning, and that his eyes were like flaming torches, and that his legs were like burnished bronze, and that his words sounded like a multitude. Now there are some, to be transparent, there are some scholars who would say that the figure in Daniel 10 is, is not the son of man, that it's an angel, but I just find that really hard to believe especially when you look at it in light of the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Now, in case you're still not convinced, there are more allusions here. For example, I mentioned earlier that the robe and sash were something we see described of the high priest. When we look at Isaiah's vision in chapter, Isaiah chapter 6 of God, we're told there that the one on the throne has a long robe. As well, in verse 15, when it describes Jesus' voice like the roar of many waters, we see Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in chapter 43 talk about and describe the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, and in both places he mentions that his voice was like the sound of many waters. Also, many commentators think that when it talks about Jesus having a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, that it's a reference to Isaiah 11.4 and Isaiah 49.2, both of which describe God's Messiah. And then if that wasn't enough, probably the biggest and most explicit claim from Jesus in the passage to deity and to even uh, Jesus being one with Yahweh is the statement there in verse 17 when it says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, last week, Pastor Chris explained verse 8 of Revelation 1 when it talks about I am the Alpha and the Omega, and that those are just the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Now, some argue that Jesus is the one speaking in verse 8. However, though, others would say, no, it's God the Father who is the one speaking. But either way, it's absolutely clear here in verse 17 that Jesus is saying that he is the first and the last. And in Isaiah 44, 6, Yahweh says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You see, in talking about this section, uh, again, Craig Keener, uh, who's a New Testament scholar, he wrote this. He said, the book repeatedly applies Old Testament images concerning God to Jesus. And I know that maybe for some of you, this is not your thing and it's, hard to, it's been hard to follow. I know I've thrown a lot of verses at you. But again, the point I think that John is trying to make here is that Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, it shouldn't surprise us to see descriptions of him match those same descriptions of God in the Old Testament. Jesus even told his disciples this in John chapter 14. Remember that scene? Philip's like, he, Jesus is talking about the Father, and Philip's like, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responds in verse 9, he says, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Um, earlier in John in chapter 10, Jesus is in the midst of going back and forth with the Pharisees and he just comes out and just says it very explicitly. He says, I and the Father are one. And if you keep reading after that, you see they know exactly what he was talking about because it tells us that they pick up stones to stone him. Again, there's so much more that we could say about this. I mean, we could talk about John chapter one or Colossians chapter one or Hebrews chapter one, all of which talk about Jesus being God. But for now, we'll leave it at this. 
The only other thing I want to say on this point that we have to understand and take into mind here is that this description of Jesus from John is not telling us what Jesus actually looks like, but what he is like. And here's what I mean by that. Commentator Dennis Johnson said it this way. He said, Jesus reveals himself to John in the language of prophetic symbolism, not in a literal description of his resurrection body as he now sits at God's right hand. We are not to think that the glorified body in which Jesus ascended to heaven now has a sword in place of a tongue, snow white hair, or a face so overpowering with physical light that it cannot be viewed with joy by the pure of heart. The symbols seen by John in the vision reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. His identity as the searcher of hearts, full of consuming holiness and boundless wisdom, the perfect priest standing for his people before the Father, the perfect king defending them against the devil by his invincible word. Revelation's vision shows us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. So I thought I'd just throw that out there in case you're terrified to go see Jesus one day uh, when you die. But let's move on now to the third truth that John shows us from this vision, and that is Jesus is a kind friend. See, when we read this description here in Revelation 1, it's easy to forget that the one seeing Jesus, the one encountering him, is the same John who spent three years living with him. I mean, of all people, Jesus was one of John's closest friends. In fact, John, if you read his gospel, he often refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, it talks about how John was the one sitting next to Jesus or leaning next to Jesus and that he often leaned against his chest. When Jesus was dying on the cross or going to the cross, it was John that he looked out and said, will you take care of my mother? And yet here is John encountering not just the risen Jesus, but also the glorified Jesus, and he's terrified. Now, he got a small glimpse of Jesus in his glory at the transfiguration, but you just get the sense here that this is even more intense than that. And so because of that, like Daniel and the other prophets who encountered the glory of God, he falls to the ground as though dead. And yet, what does the Lord do here? Well, it says that he put out his right hand and he touched John and he told him to not be afraid. I mean, Jesus didn't have to do that, right? He could have just let John sit there and feel the full weight and tear of the glory of God. But instead, he decides to comfort him. And instead, he decides to come near and even touch John and to help bring him out of that terrified state. And you see, the reason that Jesus could relieve John's fear is because Jesus had paid for John's sins. I mean, if John's sins were not paid for, then Jesus could not have told him to not be afraid, right? Because it's only as our sins are forgiven that we can encounter the glory of God without shame and without fear. Now with that, not only does Jesus touch John, but he also, uh, we see here that he speaks some very encouraging and life-giving words over him. Which brings us to the last truth we wanna look at this morning, and that is this, Jesus is sovereign over death and history. Look at the end of verse 17 again. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. 
Now, I know that Chris spoke to this a little bit last week, but it's such an important truth that I want to highlight it again. You see, I know that for many of us in here, the events of the last 18 months or so, and even the events of the last couple days with COVID and with Afghanistan and forest fires and earthquakes, I know that for some of us, maybe it has us feeling like the world is just completely out of control. But in reality, it is not. There is one who is in control. There is one who is the first and the last. There is one who has conquered the grave and who has triumphed over death and who right now holds the keys to death in Hades. You see, we as humans, we may have thrown this world into chaos and we may be responsible for bringing death into the world through our rebelling against our creator at the fall. But in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection, Jesus has taken back the keys to death in Hades. And there is nothing and there is no one who can take them from his hand. I mean, look, if we have a small view of Jesus right now, if we have a too narrow of a view of history and of eternity, then yes, you and I could look around right now and we could be discouraged. And we could even feel a sense of hopelessness. But if we have a proper vision of Jesus Christ, and if we understand all that he has accomplished for us, and even for this physical earth, this physical creation, then you and I should be able to trust him. And we should be able to do what John and the other early Christians and what Christians have done for thousands of years, and that is persevere. Or as John says there in verse nine, patiently endure. I mean, yes, this world is broken. Yes, there are devastating things that happen on a regular basis. But no, this is not the end of our story. And no, this does not mean that you and I cannot have hope in the midst of suffering. And so to close here, I just want to ask you, what aspect of the risen, glorified Jesus do you need to encounter and lean into today? Do you need to lean into and be reminded of the fact that Jesus loves and that he cares for his church? Do you need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is in the midst of her right now? He's not in some far off place hoping that she gets her act together, hoping that she figures it out one day. No, he is among her and he is actively caring for her. The church, we are told, is the bride of Christ. And because she's the bride of Christ, Jesus is going to make sure that she is loved and cared for until that day in Revelation 19 when we are presented to him as the bride. Or if not that, perhaps this morning you need to lean into the fact that Jesus himself is God. Like maybe for some of you, you need to lean into the fact that Jesus is completely holy and righteous. That no matter how many church leaders fall, no matter how many celebrity Christians walk away from the faith, there is never going to be any late-breaking news stories about Jesus and about his past. I mean, we're not going to wake up one day and find out that Jesus was sexually inappropriate with Mary Magdalene. We're not going to wake up one day and discover that Jesus was a bully or that he was domineering towards those that he led. I mean, there's never going to be a story that's going to come out that Jesus embezzled money or that he stole from the poor. There's never going to be a story that he deconstructed his faith and, and lost it and just walked away. No, Jesus is and Jesus was completely holy and righteous. 
Again, he lived the life that you and I should have lived and he did it so perfectly. And so again, maybe some of us need to lean into that. I mean, I don't know how many of you have been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, I, I was very shaped by Mark Driscoll and, and, and that whole thing. And it's just been devastating to, to sort of hear all of that. And again, this kind of thing has been happening for many years now. And I don't know that for myself, I just need to lean, you know, it, it's so easy to elevate Christian leaders and to get confused and think, you know, Jesus is up here. And sometimes we think Christian leaders are here, but man, they're not, right? There's a, there's a massive chasm between Christ's righteousness and any human being's righteousness. Maybe we need to remember that, or maybe some of you need to be reminded that Jesus is just a kind and loving friend, that he's the type of friend who will stand by you and comfort you when you are afraid, that when you are in a season or a situation that has you so afraid that you can hardly stand, that Jesus, your kind friend, will come close and he will touch you and he will speak words of life over you. See, again, I know that maybe some of you in here, you really have been struggling with anxiety lately, whether it's COVID-related or some other health issue or maybe it's financial or maybe just going back to school has you really stressed out or whatever it is. But either way, you are full of anxiety. And look, at the end of the day, all anxiety is is fear. And look, if that's you, maybe today you need to know and you need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus loves you and that he wants you to be free from fear. I mean, his most often repeated exhortation and command in the gospels was, one of them anyway, was to fear not. And so maybe this morning, if you're in that place, you just need to pray and you need to tell the Lord, say, Lord, I, I, I confess to you, I'm walking in fear. I'm full of anxiety. Lord, I know I'm not supposed to be afraid. I know I'm supposed to believe and to have faith, but, but just like one of the dads in the gospels, Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief, right? Like sometimes, I don't know about you, but that's the only prayer I have. Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And in that same vein, maybe lastly, some of us in here, we need to be reminded of, and we need to lean into the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he is sovereign over death and he is sovereign over human history. Again, this, this world is not out of control. We have not been forgotten by God. Good will triumph over evil. That's what this whole book is about. The grave has been conquered. We do have a hope and a future and the kingdom is already here and one day it will be fully realized. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just pray, Lord, God, would you help me and would you help this body get a glimpse of the risen, glorified Jesus today? God, we are living in days we cannot have a small view of you. Holy Spirit, I just pray you would come right now. You'd fill this room with the presence of Jesus Christ that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that he is present with us, that he is among the church. Jesus, I just pray for my friends here, Lord. If anyone is just living in fear, God, if anyone is just walking around full of anxiety and, 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 and again, is just in that place, Lord, where they just feel so much uncertainty. 
Jesus, I pray you'd present yourself to them as big today, as the one who holds the the keys of death in Hades. Thank you, Lord, that you have and you will overcome this world. Lord, you said, in this life you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, help us to lean into that today. Jesus, help us to worship you. Lord, we can't even worship you without your help. Pray the song in your name.